Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. And thank you to all the listeners who have given us ratings and reviews so far. Want to connect up to the Bitcoin network, but are confused by the multitude of choices and intimidated by the complexity of getting started? Come to blockdaemon.com slash unchained and launch a Bitcoin node in mere moments. We'll do all the heavy lifting for you. The future of lending is here. Alt Lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum assets to borrow U.S. dollars. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Crypto. Collateralized. Altlending.com. Last week was an eventful week for me. I gave a TEDx talk in San Francisco, and I will say, (laughs) not feeling the need to be humble about it, I think it went well. And I'm really proud of that because I am typically not being asked to speak. I get on stage and I ask questions. And a lot of people said to me before the talk, oh, you must be so used to this. And no, I was not. I was super, super nervous before I started. And I had practiced a lot, but based on some feedback, I'd also made some last minute changes that meant that even the morning of, I was forgetting pieces of my talk because I literally just changed them in the 36 hours before. So in the end, it all worked out. I just practiced the parts that were giving me trouble in the hour before and did finally get it all down. So thank you to TEDx San Francisco. And I will be sure to, you know, tweet out a link and maybe even tell you guys about it on the podcast when the video comes out. Um, The other thing I did last week was I started the interviews for my book. In case you missed the news, I got a book deal to write about events in crypto in recent history. And so I started on a number of interviews and it's going well and it's really exciting and fun. You know, for those of you who remember back when my main thing was writing, writing always was and always will be my first love. And so it was just so fun to be in reporting mode and to be imagining what I might make of the material. And then the last eventful thing that happened was I I got involved in a Twitter debate between Nouriel Rubini and Vitalik Buterin, not actually in the debate itself, but I saw that Nouriel, and for those of you who don't know who he is, he's an NYU economist and He had been featured in the Senate testimony on cryptocurrency on Thursday, along with Peter Van Valkenburg of Coin Center, who is a previous guest on the show from a couple of years ago. And actually, Suna Amaz of Token Daily and I discussed the hearing ever so briefly on Unconfirmed last Friday. And Professor Rubini came up pretty strongly against crypto for various reasons. And what I was telling Suna was that what I think is really fascinating is that when I listen to him, much of what he says actually is factual, 
Sometimes he does get facts wrong, but by and large, he appears to understand crypto, which is not always the case with other people from the traditional financial services world who talk about crypto. However, he takes the same facts and then concludes that the technology will never advance beyond where it is now, uh, which I think just is a strange conclusion to make. I was telling Suna that I feel like the whole story of human history is that we invent technologies and then improve them. (laughs) Um, This is not to say that crypto will work out if it fails, which it very well could. You know, I don't, I don't give that a super high percentage, but I definitely know it is a distinct possibility. Obviously then I guess he will have been right. However, I find it really interesting that he is entirely convinced that that is what will happen. I feel like it's way too early to know for certain But anyway, so I saw that he tweeted that he would gladly debate Vitalik Buterin in any public forum. And I, you know, because Unchained, as I'm pretty sure the most popular crypto podcast, I thought, oh, you know, I have the natural platform for this. And I emailed him and tweeted at both of them about this. And Noriel (laughs) wrote me what is quite possibly one of the meanest emails I've ever gotten in my life. Where he called me a shill, hack, and PR person for the crypto industry. He tweeted about me as well. Uh, It was a less hateful tweet. Someone asked me, oh, are you okay? I I feel totally fine. Honestly, my main reaction upon receiving it was that I just felt stupid. I hadn't predicted he would react that way because I realized in hindsight I should have been able to foresee that. (laughs) But I think the last comment I want to make about this is that in some other forums, someone sent me his appearance at the Milken Institute last spring, I believe it was, or maybe early summer. And it made waves at that time, but I ever never watched, I actually never watched the video at that time. And I did watch it again, or I did watch it this weekend. And again, like I said earlier, much of what he says is true. You know, he talks about how mining in crypto is pretty centralized. He criticizes it for like low throughput, which is what a big part of his testimony was about, certain things like that. So he appears to have studied up on this. And so in that sense, I actually think a lot of people in crypto can learn things from what he's saying. And frankly, I think a lot of his criticisms are not that different from the criticism I hear from actual believers in crypto who are also critics of the space. So I have had a couple of skeptics episodes, I've called them. There was one with Preston Byrne and Angela Walsh. That was in the spring. I'll link to it in the show notes. And the other one was with Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. And that was from the summer. I will also link to that. So I think certainly there are a lot of valid points he makes. I did notice on Twitter, he also has been tweeting misleading facts and, or or they're not facts, but you know, just uh, things that are not true. Um, <laughs> but but by and large, a lot of what he says actually is true. And, and I think there's a lot to learn from it. So without further ado, I will just say that for this listener mail episode, I am doing this basically because I, with everything going on, the book and the TEDx and everything, I really just did not have time this one week to do a traditional episode. But I will try to answer as many questions as possible today. Thank you to all of you who did submit questions. And I apologize in advance because I already know I can't get to all of them. 
a few other notes before we start, which is that nothing I say in this episode is investment advice, legal advice, or any other kind of advice. As always, hopefully you know from my work and from both my podcast and my articles that you should always do your own research. And, you know, I can have guests on here and uh, they may say misleading things. And if I don't happen to catch it in the moment, then, you know, it behooves you to not rely on things that are said or rely solely on things that are said in the Unchained or Unconfirmed podcasts. Yeah. Other than that, I will go to the first question, which is from No Name. (laughs) This person says, can you disclose your longs and shorts? So for those of you who closely watch me, you may know that when I worked at Forbes, I owned a bit of Bitcoin and Ether. And when I quit, and Forbes has a policy that if you cover something that you own, you disclose it. I had a feeling when I quit that I would not be able to hold on to the Bitcoins and Ethers for very long. And indeed, I wrote a few freelance pieces for the New York Times. As a condition of writing them, I did agree to sell or give away my the the coins that I did own. So now I'm a no-coiner. I do hold a very tiny bit of Bitcoin Ether and some of the um, coins on the Circle app because I was testing that for when I did the, the Circle interview. I can't remember if I... I feel like I tested something else recently where I did buy something, but I, I'm blanking on what that was. But anyway, so, you know, the amount that I own is like probably, I don't know, it's like $200 worth or something. It's just uh, for me as a reporter to still, you know, make sure that I understand what's going on and how to use this technology. I love using it. It's probably, (laughs) I still get a thrill out of using it. Okay. Next question is from Rebecca Jones. How are we to achieve broad adoption of Bitcoin? What level of understanding and education is needed on a global scale? This is a theme that's come up a few times in recent episodes, particularly in some panel discussions, but also actually in um, some of the interviews I've done. I think, and frankly, I'm actually seeing this also in some of the Medium posts and other blog posts and, and tweet storms and whatever that are going around online. I think a lot of people are thinking about usability. And I think that really is one of the biggest hurdles right now. And I think that will be unlocking that will be a huge step toward gaining broader adoption and and this goes back to what i was saying about how noriel had some really good points because he was i think this was in the milken thing he was talking about how when you use a bank you can trust that they will keep your money safe for you and that's their job and they're better at it than you would be if you had to keep it you know on your in your house or on your person. And I think by and large, we're seeing that in this early stage of crypto where so many people have lost their private keys, they've thrown them out, they've had them fished, their private keys fished from them, they've had them stolen via the phone hijacking scams where the hacker will call a uh, telecom and say, and pretend to be you and say, oh, uh, I want to you know, switch my phone from Sprint to T-Mobile. And so then once all all your phone calls and text messages are going to their phone, then they will change all your passwords and maybe go into your Coinbase or your other, other crypto accounts and move the crypto out to their wallet. 
And then, you know, there's no bank of Bitcoin that you can call to reverse that transaction. So you are just out of that money. So there's been, you know, so many instances where we've seen that these basic usability issues are one reason that people are losing their coins or they don't understand it. Or, you know, you even had during the ICO phase, all these people trying to buy into ICOs from a Coinbase account, not understanding that then they wouldn't receive the tokens. So I think there's just a lot of, like I said, basic usability and understanding amongst the general population that needs to happen in order for you know mass adoption to occur. The other thing is that for those of you who didn't see it, there was a really great post on the USV blog where they talked about how everyone is saying that right now we need to invest in the infrastructure layer and that that is what is going to kind of uh, build out all the infrastructure and then the apps will come later. However, they pointed to numerous examples throughout history where the app came first and then and the infrastructure was built to support that app. So one of the first examples they gave was the light bulb and they talked about how the light bulb came first before the electric grid. And another example they gave was airplanes and about how that came before the uh, this network of airports and air traffic control and all these things. So I think that we're already maybe starting to see some of this interplay between apps and infrastructure. And it's a really great blog post because they have all these graphs on how it sort of ping pongs back and forth. Like you get this one breakout app, it causes this certain infrastructure to be built. And then that infrastructure enables this kind of next level app, which then spurs the next level of infrastructure and so on and so forth. And so perhaps an early, so so probably the very first example of, of this here, of course, is Bitcoin, the currency is the app. And, and well, okay, so Bitcoin, the currency and Bitcoin, the network sort of grew at the same time. Although I guess you could say like, you know, the growth in the network really happened uh, because people were interested in the app of the digital currency. And maybe another kind of app that obviously took a, well, there are a couple. One is maybe ICOs where there was a lot of demand to try to do these investments. And we saw We've seen, we're seeing now that, you know, my Ether wallet and my crypto are kind of trying out new ways of managing or, or new features for those systems that could help people trying to do those things. There's also CryptoKitties, which came out, which was a popular app. And for those of you who listened to the CryptoKitties episode, we talked about a lot of the difficulty that people had buying the CryptoKitties. And when I asked the CEO, how much bigger he thinks CryptoKitties could be if it weren't for all the difficulty people had with like, you know, buying on Coinbase and then using their MetaMask and da da da. He was like, oh, a hundred times bigger. So um, like he was saying that when they watch people go through the flows, like 99% of people just couldn't even get all the way there. So the last example of this that I can think of is one that I'm watching right now, which is there's this journalism platform called Civil which is trying to, uh, it's sorry, it's a blockchain journalism platform and they're doing an ICO. And what's interesting is they worked with Token Foundry, which I don't know for those of you um, who maybe didn't 
uh, haven't followed what Token Foundry is doing. But what's interesting to me is they've come up with these guidelines about how to structure token sales. And they're really trying to make it seem less like an investment and more like a product, which I think is super fascinating. And they really, you know, write these guidelines in a way where they want you to have an understanding of what you're buying. Um, however, I think, you know, that really has its intended effect, which is to deter the speculators. And so what's interesting is that Civil had a minimum that it was targeting, which was $8 million. And they, last I heard, were not quite at $2 million. So and the sale closes this week. So they may not even hit their minimum target, which, you know, I, I'm not sure what they'll do at that point, if they'll refund everybody's money or what. But that just goes to show that, you know, it really is difficult to participate. And, you know, during the ICO craze, because everybody wanted to get rich, there was a huge amount of motivation for people. But even despite that, it probably could have been a lot bigger if it weren't for these hurdles. So there's a lot more education that needs to happen. There needs to be a lot more ease of use, I think. That's another huge issue. And, you know, in terms of how all that occurs, I really think it's just like going to be a lot of different efforts in a lot of different directions across the industry. The next question comes from Russell Lloyd. What's one thing in the crypto space you've changed your mind about since you first started covering it? And there's a related question from Katya. How did your personal perception of the space evolve since the first day you learned about blockchain and or Bitcoin? Every person goes through different stages while diving into this rabbit hole. I wonder what your journey looks like and most importantly, where you are today compared to yourself, say in 2017 and 2016. Well, the easiest answer to this question is that I started reporting on this in 2015 when the mantra in the space was blockchain, not Bitcoin. And I actually wrote the first large magazine story, magazine feature with a cover line on blockchain being used in financial services. It was quite possibly the longest email, uh, email, <laughs> the longest article that Forbes magazine has ever run. Uh, that's what my editors who had been there for 30 years were were saying. I mean, they didn't definitively prove it, but they they thought it might be. And the article featured Chain, the company, and talked about how um, essentially you could use this technology to improve the back ends of a lot of existing financial services and that those companies could then also now offer new products that they were not able to offer before with existing technology. And the funny thing is that at that time also, so the way I got into this was that I reported the Forbes FinTech 50 list with another reporter. She and I divided it into categories and I took digital currencies. And so I was vetting all the companies for that category. And when I interviewed Coinbase, they were the kind of one holdout. And I, I was asking them, oh, well, you know, how are you going to get adoption of Bitcoin? And they were like, well, you know, it's cheaper than using a credit card. Uh, credit card's like 3% and this is much less. So uh, retailers could offer discounts of 1% for using Bitcoin. <laughs> I was just like, this is so not convincing. And I didn't put them on the list. And... Um, <laughs> Which is funny because Coinbase is truly the winner today, I think we could all safely say. <laughs> so um, anyway, clearly I was wrong about that. Um, <laughs> although to my, to my in my defense, this was just when I was learning about this, like literally I was learning about it in that moment. 
So I think the other couple things, or well, the other main thing maybe that I might mention about where I am in my journey or what I've changed my mind about is uh, something that kind of interests me is I find myself going back and forth on ICOs a lot. And what I mean by that is that obviously there has been a lot of talk about the inequalities that we see in our system. And, you know, I mean, I have lived in places like New York and the Bay Area, which uh, talk about, you know, <laughs> being confronted with wealth inequality on a daily basis. This, they're kind of like the prime environments where you will see both ends of the spectrum every day. So in some respect, I, I kind of like the fact that ICOs are sort of democratizing. However, I covered personal finance for many years, and I also view ICOs as a way for people to easily scam other people and for unwitting investors to lose a lot of money. And so in that regard, I really do think that there is a reason for all these regulatory protections and that there is a reason that all of this regulation has been built over the decades. Um, yet at the same time, I do recognize that it does, in a way, perpetuate these inequalities, especially with something as a blunt as the accredited investor rule, which essentially you know, for those of you who don't know what that is, it says that you have to be to, to invest in certain investments. You need to be an accredited investor, which means that your income needs to be. Oh shoot, I'm just forgetting if it's two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand um, annually, or and then also, or you can have net a net worth of more than a million dollars. And I was just talking about this with Barry Silbert uh, after we wrapped the recent episode I did with him. And, you know, he was saying that he's always thought the accredited investor rule wasn't, wasn't very well built, which I definitely understand. And I've heard multiple people talk about it being sort of similar actually to the token foundry situation where it should be sort of knowledge-based, which makes more sense to me. And that could perhaps be a really good solution because that would then you know, enable it to be more democratizing um, without, while retaining sort of that protectionist attitude, which I do think does serve a purpose. So anyway, yeah, I think, and, and of course, there's another reason why I'm less bullish on ICUs, which is, of course, that there's been so many scams and just really unsavory things going on with all that. So hopefully that will die down as we're starting to see the speculative mania pass a little bit. Uh, the next question is from blockchain, uh, or at crypto creeper with two R's or I guess four R's total on Twitter. I love your podcast and listen to all, to them all. Just wondering, has your view of Ethereum changed in the last three months? So I don't, I actually don't know why he, he or she is asking about the last three months. I don't know if my view on it has changed per se. I think I, maybe have more of an understanding of its pitfalls or what it cannot do simply because we are, of course, seeing these new smart contract platforms that are coming out to compete with it. And so when those projects talk with me about what they're building, very many of them will reference Ethereum and say, like, essentially, oh, you know, we're solving for this problem on Ethereum. So in that regard, uh, maybe I just have a more nuanced picture of, of kind of the pros and cons um, however, by the same token, I would also say that I continue to be amazed by how many projects are building on Ethereum. 
for those of you who are regular listeners, you've probably noticed I'm doing this sort of like decentralized finance series. Um, I had zero X on, uh, Dharma, uh, DYDX. I'm trying to think of what are the other ones. Um, but you know, all these projects are building on Ethereum. Uh, the most popular stable coin, MakerDAO, uh, well, actually, sorry, that's not the most popular one. Um, but the one with the most hype probably at the moment, because the most popular one is Tether, which, um, has super, super shady history, or, uh, at least will not give, it will not consent to a full audit. So, uh, there's a lot of questions around Tether, but I see a lot of buzz around many of the projects that are building on Ethereum. And so in my TEDx talk, I talked about the parallel world of finance that I think is being built. And, Frankly, a lot of those projects actually are building on Ethereum, although I do know that many of them would probably switch if something better came along. So in that regard, I'm not certain that this will be, you know, that this first mover advantage will really amount to anything in the long run. I think there's a long way to go. There's a lot of, uh, it's, I mean, it's just such early days in the space. So, okay. Next question. Jonathan Chow, 2017 bull run gave rise to ICOs. How do you think 2018, 2019 bull run will manifest. Again, what I'm saying here is not investment advice. I cannot in any way, shape or form predict the future. However, um, I can tell you a little bit more about what I was chatting about with Barry Silver after we finished recording. He said something like, so I don't remember exactly what he said, but he essentially implied that he thought we were going to see prices go up again in 2019. And I was frankly surprised at, well, okay, so maybe he didn't, he must not have phrased it that way. He must have phrased it in some other way where I essentially took, took his point to be that the whole space would sort of like legitimately grow into its valuation. Because uh, when he said that, I said, oh, you know, I actually feel like a lot of the tech, technological hurdles that need to be built are going to take a bit longer than that, that these problems are, you know, ones that will probably take, I don't know, uh, more than a year really to solve. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I mean is that I think we're going to see Wall Street money, institutional money come in in a bigger way. And then I said, oh, okay, so maybe <laughs> we're going to enter in that same a kind of situation we were in at the end of 2017 where the valuations got ahead of the technology and some indications that we have about institutional money coming in have come out in the news recently where for those of you who might've seen the information, which is a great little um, boutique publication, they focus exclusively on tech and have recently launched a crypto vertical they reported that uh, several university endowments, I should have looked this up, but I'm pretty sure it was like Yale, Harvard, and Stanford had all invested in crypto uh, in some way, shape, or form recently. And so, you know, that's the, the kind of vetting that, that those institutions do, that those endowments do, I think, you know, says something about kind of where the space is at. And obviously, we have backed coming online in November. I'm not sure what effect that will have, though, because for those of you who listened to my episode with Torda Meester, he was saying that that he thought that that would lead to the prices rising. 
I said, oh, well, you know, everyone said that about the futures, but obviously that isn't what happened. So how will this be different? He didn't really have a good answer. So this, if, if any Wall Street people listen to my podcast and can explain to me how that could have a different effect on the market than the futures, then I would be interested in talking to you because I frankly, I don't understand Wall Street super well. And I really am interested to know, will this be another situation where the hype you know, did not manifest or really, will it really be different? And if so, why? Like, what is the mechanism by which we will actually see this have a positive effect on crypto prices? I, I don't know the, the answer to that. And I'm very curious to know. So yeah, so Barry, you know, at least thinks that we will see Wall Street money coming. Oh, and actually to just um, add a little bit more there about Wall Street money coming in, a couple of reasons for that are probably going to be that we're already starting to see better custody solutions. Um, you know, Bitco has its custody solution and, and they're what's called a qualified custodian. Mike Belshi discussed that on the podcast earlier this year. I can also link to that in the show notes. And a Coinbase custody, I believe, is also a qualified custodian. There are a few others. Uh, I'm just blanking. Honestly, the TEDx situation fried my brain. So. I know this stuff is happening and I'm sorry that I don't have the details for all of you, but um, but because we know these products are coming online, that probably is going to give uh, institutions more comfort with the crypto space. And so in that regard, we could see more of them. Oh, and, and the last thing I will say is that I was talking with another source who said that the type of institutional player that they're talking with is different from previous institutional money, which might have been like smaller before where it was like single family offices and now it's more like multifamily offices or as you know I just mentioned endowments in this case so who knows um I don't know what will happen but those are some of the theories floating around next question David Erickson how do you think Bitcoin will behave in a serious recession slash financial crisis? I mean, at some point, years or maybe years from now, we will see another recession slash crisis, I'd imagine. Ha ha. Yes, I agree with you on that point. <laughs> so hmm, how will Bitcoin behave in a serious recession or financial crisis? Well, this is one of those questions where in the absence of any other factor, it's basically impossible to predict because, you know, is this going to happen like a year from now or is it going to happen five years from now? Is it going to happen 10 years from now? You know, depending on your time frame, it could happen at a time when we're in a similar phase infrastructure wise where there's a lot of basic usability issues around Bitcoin that would prevent it from becoming a safe haven in a financial crisis. However, even if it were a year from now, maybe in some limited fashion, we might see some people turn to it because obviously there are at least pretty decent consumer facing on ramps like Coinbase, frankly. Um, you know, it's just really the easiest place where you can just go straight with your bank account and, and buy a little bit of um, Bitcoin, Ether, and a few of the other cryptos. So who knows? I mean, if it were more like five or 10 years from now, then perhaps at that time when the usability issues are more resolved, uh, it could become even more popular. But then it's a question of, well, by that point, the space will have matured so much that will there be another crypto asset that will be a kind of more of a safe haven than Bitcoin? You know, I don't I don't know. There, there's just really no way to know. Um, I think the only things we can point to are that 
certainly in places where money doesn't work well, we have seen in limited fashion that some of those people's some of the people in those economies do turn to Bitcoin um, or other crypto assets. And so perhaps at that time, we might see the same thing. Next question from Chris Belmont. What is one surprising thing you recently learned? So I literally, <laughs> I could barely think of anything, uh, but I was really interested by this study that Chainalysis released and Fortune did an article on that came out last week that showed that whales account for 4.6% of all Bitcoins and that they busted the myth that the whales are kind of like negatively affecting the price and they said that they actually largely help stabilize the market. As somebody who doesn't feel like, you know, I super understand how uh, these financial systems work or how financial markets work. Um, that was something that I found interesting. So I figured I would just point to that. Okay, we're going to take a break to discuss the velocity problem and other issues. But first, I'd like to take a quick break for our fabulous sponsors. A startup that completed an ICO and looking to leverage Ethereum for working capital. A miner looking to buy more rigs without having to sell Bitcoin. Alt lending can help. Alt Lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum to borrow US dollars while retaining ownership of their crypto assets. We bring years of financial and technological expertise to the blockchain space. Access to institutional capital means borrowers don't have to wait weeks to receive a loan. Our simple and efficient vetting process makes getting a loan easy. No membership tokens or complicated signups required. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Asset lending. Reimagined. Altlending.com. Want to make it as easy as possible for a developer community to connect to your main net? Blockdaemon offers a blockchain networking tool that spins up nodes around the globe in seconds via its simple email invite system and GitHub integration. Leading protocols like Aon and Stellar trust Blockdaemon for their DevOps and decentralization services. Blockdaemon is offering all blockchain projects a global decentralized network management tool connected to multiple infrastructure providers. Go to blockdaemon.com slash unchained and start a free 30-day trial today. I'm taking listener questions for today's episode. The next question is from Joshua Weiser. You seem to be skeptical of some claims by your guests. Are you willing to be more explicit about which parts of the industry you think will blossom and which you think are complete hypes or scams? are complete hype or scams. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Again, I'm not giving investment advice. Do your own research. Some of the areas that I think could possibly blossom, I will just probably be obvious to anybody who listens to my show. But certainly the first is just, I think we're going to see a money come out of crypto. We're already starting to see that in a limited way. But Bitcoin you know, as I mentioned earlier, was really kind of the first app. And it really was the first thing that helped people understand the potential in this technology. So in that regard, I would be surprised if out of this technology, we did not end up with something that was money-like. 
And already there are a lot of contenders for this mantle. In addition to Bitcoin, there's Bitcoin Cash, there's Litecoin, there's uh, Dash, there's Zcash, there's Monero. So I think we will certainly see some kind of money that comes out of this, you know, whether or not that ends up competing in any significant way with fiat currency, I have no idea. And because we are likely to see digital fiat currencies at some point, I really don't know also how that will affect these cryptocurrencies, how popular they can get. You know, there's just way too many factors to try to um, to make any prediction there. But I would be surprised if we don't see some form of money in whether it's in a limited fashion or a wider fashion that does take off using this technology. Another area that I think is probably going to thrive is going to be privacy. And when I say that, I mean in particular privacy coins. And that is for a few reasons. So as we've seen with technologies over and over again, frankly, many of them take off because they criminals find utility in them. And uh, that actually, you know, to go back to my little description of the um, app and infrastructure, I guess, you know, play between them, the interplay between them. Like one of the apps, frankly, was probably Silk Road for, uh, for Bitcoin. So in that regard, a lot of those criminals found out the hard way that when you have a transparent money, then your crimes will be more easily traced back to you. So if you listen to the very first episode I did with Katie Hahn, uh, who used to be a federal prosecutor. She's now one of the general partners at Andreessen Horowitz, and she leads the A16Z crypto fund with Chris Dixon, who was on the podcast this summer. You guys should check out that interview. But in her initial interview with me when she was a prosecutor, she talked about how she was able to solve a few crimes using the Bitcoin blockchain, where they realized that there were two federal agents that were stealing the Bitcoins from the Silk Road investigation. So um, I think certainly criminals are figuring out that maybe having a privacy coin is a good idea. However, those aren't the only people that are going to find such a thing useful. Zcash is a privacy coin that its technology is now being incorporated, as far as I understand, into JP Morgan Chase's blockchain, Quorum. And that's because financial institutions also don't want to be broadcasting their transactions out to the world and for, you know, for competitive reasons. So I think we will probably see privacy coins or privacy technology take off. And frankly, we actually, we're already seeing that. The last area that I could probably pretty confidently say will probably blossom is the smart contract area. And the reason that I say that is because Ethereum has already blossomed and has proven to attract a lot of interesting ideas to it that do take off rather quickly. For instance, the DAO, um, which those of you who aren't familiar with that, that was a venture fund that was labeled the DAO, a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It was meant to be a decentralized venture fund that would invest in various projects that the token holders would vote upon. And it raised $150 million at a time when like barely anybody even understood crypto, let alone owned Ether. I mean, it was just really incredible. That all went bust, unfortunately, because there was a bug in the code. 
However, the whole ICO phenomenon also took place on Ethereum. And in general, I find, you know, as I mentioned before, a lot of people are building on Ethereum and are looking to to build on smart contract platforms. And we're seeing a lot of competition in the smart contract space, I think, probably because people know that this is going to be a big thing. And sure, Ethereum has the lead at the moment, but it's so early that a lot of people want to get in and compete because they know that this is this game is not over. In terms of what areas I think are complete hype slash scams, I don't know if I can say anything is complete hype or a scam, but I will tell you some of the areas that I'm less sanguine about. And I would say one thing that I've never fully understood is this concept of existing centralized companies doing coins. So like when the Kick News, Kick uh, launched a, a cryptocurrency called Kin, and uh, they were saying that they were trying to do this like messaging ecosystem. I didn't, I just, I don't know. There was something about that. I, I just really either didn't get it or just really didn't think it was going to work. And I did not look closely at the Telegram white paper, but that was another one. I, I was so busy at that time. I, I don't remember. I, I didn't, so I didn't read the white paper or anything like that, but I just remember from what I could glean from it, it just felt a little bit like a, I want to say a me too phenomenon, but um, now that has a very different meaning. Uh, what I mean is just, you know, they were kind of glomming onto this trend. And as far as, as I understand, they wrote their white paper extremely quickly. So, you know, it's different from some of the other projects that we saw earlier raising money via ICOs like Tezos, which had published its white paper in 2014. You know, I think telegrams came together in a, in a few months Similar to that, I, I don't understand the... So a Ripple is, I think, a great company doing great enterprise blockchain work. It's probably one of the most successful in that regard. But I don't understand this kind of situation with XRP that they're trying to do where you keep the middlemen, like you keep the banks, but you also have a coin. As far, you know, I just feel like when I dive into these projects a lot of times, the ones that make the most sense to me are the ones where you remove the middlemen, but the way that you coordinate these global activities to provide services in the same way that you would want, you know, as if this network were a company, is to have a coin that incentivizes those behaviors. So, so I just fundamentally don't understand how you could keep the middlemen, uh, but if they're all agreeing to do all these things with each other, then I, I don't feel like you need the coin. So, and, and frankly, you know, they have full on admitted that their X rapid solution doesn't need XRP. It works without it. So, so, you know, I think, I guess they would agree with me on that point. I'm also not a sync on enterprise blockchains, as I mentioned before there, I did write an article about some work being done in that regard. So there, I think is a joint venture being launched by Maersk and oh, I'm just blanking. I think it's IBM and then we saw that news about Walmart tracking uh, the provenance of lettuce on on a blockchain. And I do think there are some other applications where, of course, it, I'm not saying this won't work. I'm just saying, is it going to be revolutionary? I don't really think so. I think it's just a way for existing companies to provide their services better, uh, which is great for all of us. But is it going to change the way things are done? Not really. Next question is from Phil Gomes. Most people are surprised when I tell them that the Nakamoto white paper was published 10 years ago on Halloween. 
Many audiences blanch at hearing this since they feel it must mean they are further behind the times than they thought when they watch into the room. So what would you say to this group? I imagine they would be potential listeners if they felt they weren't already late to the party. What I would say is the sector is so new. There was a survey in March that said that only 8% of Americans own crypto. And as I was mentioning earlier, I mean, just fundamental questions about usability have not been resolved. So there's so much work to be done if you are someone who's interested in this and, and kind of feel like you can vision some future where this technology would be used in some way. You know, if that's the case, then I think there's plenty of room where you could jump in and say, hey, I can help build something here. And the other thing I would say is that in the CryptoKitties episode, we were joking about the experience of trying to buy a CryptoKitty. And I was saying that what they were describing to me seems like a very pre-AOL experience. And so, yeah, in that regard, I think there's just a lot to be done. And the other thing I would say to that audience is that it's not just coders that are needed. From what I understand, talking to the various groups, they're looking to hire people with non-technical skills. Uh, I myself have been approached so many times um, by various teams wanting me to work for them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, However, uh, that's only to say that I do know people even like me who have zero uh, technical knowledge you know, can be useful, or at least these these teams are looking for people with those kinds of skills. And I think in particular, because, especially with the situation with ICOs, where you become not exactly a public company, but I mean, yeah, essentially, you know, you, you have this dark relationship now with your investors, that there's a lot of kind of community management that needs to go on, which is very much more of a soft skills type of uh, job. So, so yes, I do think there's plenty to do if this space interests you. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to be built. So uh, there's room for a lot more people. And frankly, also when I talk to these companies, they're all like, oh my God, we're hiring. Do you know anyone? <laughs> uh, so <laughs> if you're interested, I imagine there's a lot of opportunity for you. Next question is from Adam Sadowski. Uh, he actually recorded this, so I will play this tape. Hi, Laura. My name is Adam. I listen to your podcast on a regular basis, and I enjoy it very much. So I was listening to one of your podcasts that featured Jimmy Song, and my interest was piqued by the short conversation on oracles and the concept of the oracle problem. I know that Jimmy has some firm and outspoken views on how he believes blockchain technology will evolve, but I felt that he was unfairly dismissive on this matter. In fact, I think that the vast majority of interesting and potentially world-changing smart contract use cases requires them to be externally aware and interoperable with existing financial and network infrastructure. So my question is this, why does the conversation about a solution to the Oracle problem seem to be so casually swept under the rug? I'd like to hear about some of the approaches to tackle the problem and which approaches you feel like are most likely to succeed. Thanks. So oracles, I don't know if I quite agree with part of what you said here in your question, where you said that sometimes the the question about the oracle problem seems to be casually swept under the rug. Frankly, a lot of sources will talk to me about how hard it is to do such things and to get even something as simple as like an accurate price for ether. I mean, so this is, you know, here we're talking about 
a crypto, a crypto asset itself. And they're saying, wow, to try to figure out an Oracle for the price of ether is difficult because think about this, like, what are you going to do? You know, get every single exchange in the world. Plus I, I'm not sure what the lo- what the equivalent of local Bitcoins is for ether, but I'm sure there is one plus all the OTC deaths. Like how, how do you do that? And then if you have this situation, like we had on GDAX, shoot, was that in the summer of 2017? I think it was where there was a flash crash in ether because some trader placed a huge, huge order, um, a single huge order on one exchange and the price, you know, crashed down to like 10 cents per ETH. I don't remember how much it was at the time. Let's say it was like, you know, 300 bucks or or more. I, I really don't know. I mean, then, then what is that? Does that really contribute to the valid price of ether? If you're using this Oracle, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really naughty issue. It's not so or authority issue. It's really something that uh, takes a lot of thought. And there, there's a great little medium post uh, that talks about the Oracle problem. And I liked this one quote from it, where it said, the Oracle problem is just a statement that at some point you need to trust some outside source to accurately give input as to what the state of reality is. And the the post is by someone named Alexander Tsenkov. And I wrote my college thesis on Nietzsche, who will talk about this problem about like how there is no one objective reality. So I definitely fully agree that yes, uh, sometimes something that seems quite obvious, like a, you know, a so-called fact, is sometimes just really hard to verify. That doesn't mean that there aren't solutions out or being proposed out there. Uh, one is that you could use a centralized solution, you know, some kind of Oracle that comes, that is a specific company that will ensure the veracity of that data. You know, then of course the question is, well, then it's a single point of failure. What if someone, you know, somebody could easily be motivated to commit fraud using on that company um, or within that company to manipulate the markets in some way to their benefit so then how trustworthy is that? You know, uh, that's a big question there. Then we have something like Augur, which people vote on the truth. And so they're, they actually, I think, do kind of use a somewhat centralized Oracle process, but because then people vote on it, that kind of helps to ensure the accuracy and they have a whole mechanism by which you can raise disputes. And for those of you who missed it, you should definitely check out my episode with Joey Krug of Augur where we discuss this. But as you can hear from my questions to him, I could imagine, you know, as a journalist, obviously I've been following this whole fake news thing. There are some people who are just so vested in their alternative facts, I guess you could call them. <laughs> and for that reason, they they just will... Uh, defend that alternative universe to the death. And so Augur has this situation where like if a certain percentage all agree on, on that, then they can like essentially split off. And, you know, there are so many instances where uh, we've seen in our recent political history where, you know, you have these people that claim that like Obama wasn't born in the US or something like that, or that Hillary was running a prostitution ring in a pizza parlor in New York or in DC. And they really, really believe that. Like they really, I think they really believe that. So who knows when you start putting money to these things, like, will, will we 
end up in a situation which we've seen happening with the crypto assets where there are a lot of forks. Like I, I have no idea. Um, I'm just trying to point out that, yeah, this is one way of trying to resolve these issues uh, via the Oracle process, but is it going to work? I don't know. In some ways I could see it working in other ways, maybe not. Another kind of solution that's being put out there is using a process where oracles have to stake money and their reputation and that they have skin in the game. And, you know, that that might work. Um, I know that when I interviewed Danny on of Trust Token, they have some similar mechanism where essentially they, they want to be able to put real world assets on the blockchain, including, you know, I guess like tokenized real estate or something like that. And so I was saying, well, you're not going to have people checking on all these apartments or, you know, uh, buildings all over the world that are being put on this blockchain. And he was like, oh yeah, but you know, we have these local people and they can build their reputations by verifying this. And, you know, I, I did point out, okay, well then at any given moment, that means that you will have some percentage of fraud on the network before um, before it gets caught. So, you know, there's at the moment, I, I don't really see any perfect solution to this Oracle issue. Um, I think it is a really, really difficult one. Super, super, super challenging. Whoever solves it first probably will become one of the, the leading smart contract platforms, at least until all the others adopt it and then <laughs> levels the playing field again. All right. My next question is from Katie. My question is about the velocity problem in Ethereum. Can you explain it? And is it true? All right. So the velocity problem. Chris Berniski explains this really well on my podcast from, I think, roughly a year ago. Gosh, um, time flies. I, I don't remember when he, he came on the show uh, to talk specifically about how to value crypto assets. But I think we discussed velocity on that show. And essentially, velocity is how quickly money passes from one holder to the next. And the more quickly it passes, the more of a sort of depressive influence it has on that price because you don't have people holding on to it and therefore kind of like artificially um, reducing supply in the sense that at least for the amount of buyers out there, there, there isn't you know a lot that people are willing to sell. So in terms of whether or not this applies to Ethereum, I think the main thing, at least at the moment, to mention is that Ethereum is at some point going to move to a proof-of-stake system. And in a staking system, that means that the validators have to put up a certain amount of Ether and lock it up in order to become validators, which for those of you who have more of a Bitcoin reference, a validator is essentially a miner. And that effect of, or, or the, that um, mechanism of locking it up will have a, should have a positive effect on the price in the sense that that reduces velocity, right? Because um, it sort of forces this mechanism of holding or hodling that then reduces velocity. So whether or not it applies to Ethereum in particular, I can't say simply because also Ethereum has a slightly different monetary policy that isn't necessarily fixed. They did recently vote to ratchet down the inflation. So the block reward was reduced from five Ether to three Ether in 2017, and then more recently to two. And, you know, reducing inflation is similar to the way that the Bitcoin 
system has been having its block reward every four years. Right now, it's 12.5 Bitcoins that are released every 10 minutes. And at the next halving in 2020, it'll be 6.25. And so in that regard, that's also, I think, another way of essentially, you know, keeping the velocity from from being high because there's, uh, like I said, less new Ether being released into the system, thereby making making it harder for those people who want to purchase Ether. But like I said, I'm not sure if the velocity problem applies to Ether in particular. I, I definitely think it's actually probably worse with other coins. A related question comes from Dan Jahaney. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. This one came in actually super last minute, so I didn't get to email him to ask him how to pronounce his name. But um, he says, assuming Ether doesn't become a store value and token velocity sands its price down to the cost of a marginal transaction, would that not compromise the security of the network under a proof of stake consensus? In other words, does Ether need to become a store value to ensure the security of the network under proof of stake? So I'm going to full on admit, I have been talking about proof of stake a little bit, but I'm not a huge expert on it. However, as I just mentioned in responding to Katie's question, I don't think Velocity will sand its price down to the cost of a marginal transaction as long as we do switch to, as long as Ethereum does switch to proof of stake. Basically, the main thing is that the price of Ether just just needs to be high enough that the cost of staking more than 51% of the supply in order to stage a 51% attack needs to be expensive enough that it will deter people from doing that. And that you know, is, is basically how uh, the network will be secured. So because staking uh, is essentially kind of in, in some ways easier than proof of work uh, where you need, you know, hardware, there could be a lot of people that are, uh, that look to get into the staking business. And so in that regard, I think um, we could see quite a large amount of ether staked. You know, I, I really have no crystal ball there, but it's just something that I'm guessing. And then about your question about whether or not Ether needs to become a store of value to ensure the security of the network. I don't think it needs to become a store of value in order to keep the price high enough to prevent this 51% attack. You know, as long as the price is just high enough to, to deter that attack, then I think the network will be secure. And as I mentioned, because I think staking is going to be a little bit easier to get into than than mining proof of work, we could maybe see quite a large amount staked. But um, I'm no expert in proof of stake. So again, take everything that I'm saying in this regard with a grain of salt. All right. Wookie25 asks me, one area that I hope you can talk about is privacy coins, including the different technologies, how each technology approaches privacy and security. So he had two questions or she, it's terrible. It's terrible. For some reason, I always assume these anonymous ones are are men, but they could very well be women. I should know. Um, (laughs) Number one, which is the most private coin? Okay. So I'm I'm really only going to talk about the two most popular ones, Zcash and Monero. As far as I understand, I don't think this is really an apples to apples comparison. I think there's just trade-offs. So Monero is more popular on the dark web and it's quote unquote private by default, but Monero isn't exactly private. And I haven't, as longtime listeners, you may know, I have not done an interview yet with Ricardo 
Spani, or Fluffy Pony of Monero. He's actually one of my favorite people in the space, um, and he's helped me a lot in various ways over the years, but um, I still haven't done an episode with him, so I cannot claim to be an expert on Monero. But from what I can glean, it, you know, like I said, isn't exactly private. It just associates information. So it will mix in individuals' transactions with other people's. So it's not clear who owns which address. And then it'll hide like balances and, and create one random one-time addresses that can't be associated with a particular person publicly. So the funds aren't associated with the original address. And, and yeah, it, it basically enables this privacy at the protocol level. Cause I think uh, these are mechanisms that people could try, you know, using a one-time address, but I mean, a Monero sort of automates this. Um, however, it's not in- completely anonymous and there have been vulnerabilities that have been discovered. They've been patched since, uh, but one of them did leave transactions that occurred before February, 2017, 20 um, identifiable. So um, in contrast, Zcash, I guess has stronger privacy technology because it actually does encrypt the data, but it's a much more taxing coin uh, from a processing perspective. And for that reason, a lot, or, or probably a number of reasons, users very seldomly choose to make transactions private. Only 13% of transactions are private. And for those of you who listened to my episode with Zuko of, of Zcash, I was mentioning to him that I feel like when you choose to make a transaction private, it does kind of cast suspicion on you. And unfortunately, because of how few people choose this, it turns out that less than 1% of all Zcash transactions involve both a shielded sender and receiver. So I was asking Zuko if this means that Zcash can be solved like a like a Sudoku, um, which he denied. Uh, but you know, I, I I think it remains to be seen because essentially all the other transactions are pretty much just like bitcoins, where you know you can figure stuff out. So one of the other issues with Zcash is that they have this thing called a trusted setup, where they undergo this process in the beginning to create the network but it relies on a small number of people and you as the user have to trust that those creators did not create counterfeit coins. And they, when they go through this process, they do a lot of things to try to build that trust that that's not what they're doing. Um, but I know some people take issue with Zcash for that reason. Oh, and then the last thing I just wanted to say was, you know, my comments about how it's pretty, when you do choose a shielded transaction, which is one of the more private transactions, it's pretty processing intensive. They are upgrading that technology. So perhaps in the future, we will see more transactions on Zcash being done in the shielded fashion. The second question is, what is the status of government's tolerance of privacy coins? So this isn't something I've looked into super well, but I did some noodling around and found that the Secret Service did ask Congress earlier this year for help in tracking anonymity enabled cryptocurrencies. There's a quote here from the Deputy Assistant Director in the U.S. Secret Service Office's Services Office of Investigations, Robert Novi. He said, we should consider additional legislative or regulatory actions to address potential challenges related to anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies. And, you know, he mentions that these cryptocurrencies are clearly ripe for illicit use 
in an effort to subvert legitimate law enforcement inquiries. Although it is more difficult to trace the movement of illicit proceeds using these newer anonymity-enhanced cryptocurrencies, it is not impossible. And apparently Japan and a few other countries are putting pressure on exchanges to delist privacy coins. One thing I did notice was that in the Senate testimony that Peter Van Valkenburg of Coin Center did last week was that he didn't, he kind of talked about how a lot of these public blockchains are auditable and have transactions that are traceable. He did not mention privacy coins, <laughs> which probably was a conscious decision on Coin Center's part. Um, but, you know, I think because both Zcash and Monero do have this um, viewing key option, which is what enables the user to selectively reveal their transactions to whoever they, whomever they choose, you know, perhaps we will see that there's some way in which even privacy coins will take off in some fashion that is not looked down upon by governments. All right, I'm going to try to do, I have, I, I know that I'm running it running over time, but I'll try to do a couple more questions. Mike McGlone has a question. How enduring is the 2018 trend in lower prices, volatility, and shifting focus to stable coins, notably Tether, num now number eight on coin market cap? Seems this trend should be the future of cryptos that might actually be used for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So in general, I would say that I don't think any price trends we're going to see over the next like five to 10 years will really endure until the technology becomes fully mature. I know for those of you who follow my stuff, you'll know that I really liked this book by Car Carlotta Perez, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, I think it's called. And in it, she describes these sort of like boom bust cycles where when a new technology comes in, we'll, we see the sort of like speculative fervor. And um, then during that time when a lot of money is sloshing around, the technology kind of gets built and sort of proves itself to a certain point, which then spurs another wave of, of uh, speculative fervor and investment, which then um, allows the technology to mature further. And, um, you know, on and on this cycle goes until basically it becomes like really entrenched and the pitfalls of that technology become apparent. And then that sort of like opens the door to the next wave of technology to come in and, and take advantage of, you know, whatever the downsides are of that technology. So it's, it's super interesting. But anyway, for that reason, uh, because the technology is so far from being anywhere near mature at this moment, I don't think this quote unquote 2018 trend that you, re that you reference here with lower prices, I don't really think it's like a trend unless you just look at it from a longer term perspective and say that it's part of the trend that we've seen so far in cryptocurrency where there's a bull run, huge run up in prices. Then there's a big crash, which lasts for like a year or two years. And then there's another big run, um, which then leads to a crash, which probably lasts for roughly the same amount of time again. So, you know, the, the two main ones that I'm talking about, which people will know or may know are uh, in the fall of 2013. I think China started getting into this and that's when we first saw the price of Bitcoin exceed $1,000. And then eventually, you know, right after that was the Mt. Gox hack. And then um, the price slowly declined until January of 2015 when it like <laughs> hit below $200. It was like 177, I think was the low. And then it just sort of kind of traded sideways in the $200 range for most of 2015. 
until uh, towards the end of that year. And then 2016, you know, sort of gradually increased, but it was really 2017, obviously, where we saw a similar hype cycle to the end of 2013. And there was that massive bubble. Um, And then again, I think this year, we're sort of seeing this kind of like more sober view of the market (laughs) right now. So anyway, so I think that's kind of just going to be part and parcel of the space for the next couple of years. In terms of your comments here on stablecoins, I would say that there's definitely significant momentum building behind stablecoins. Apparently, there's now like around 100 stablecoin projects that are either live or in the pipeline stage. And um, some of these uh, that were recently announced, like the Gemini US dollar and the Paxos IPIT stablecoin, they had uh, approval from the New York Department of Financial Services, which is uh, which is pretty big deal and um, one of the biggest pieces of news around stable coins in the last month was that a 16z crypto did invest in MakerDAO's MKR tokens. Those are not the actual stable coin; they're um, kind of like this other coin within the ecosystem that uh, enables governance. And I did an episode with Rune Christensen of. MakerDAO on Unconfirmed that you guys should check out if you didn't listen to that. But certainly Maker has a lot of momentum behind it. Uh, I've done other episodes with Danny on of Trust Token, who I mentioned. They have a stablecoin called TrueUSD. And I think in general, you know, simply because we all live in this world where we're used to using the dollar as a reference point, I do think stablecoins will be key to helping the get more people into the ecosystem and comfortable with, you know, trading and putting their money into into uh, crypto. So in that regard, yeah, I do think the stablecoin trend, if you want to show out trends, is one that we will uh, see more of in the future. And I am so sorry, you guys, but this is like going on way longer than I expected. And I'm not getting to... Um, the rest of these questions is just there there were too many and unfortunately i it, it took me a lot longer to get through what i i have already answered so far but um anyway thanks so much for joining us today if you enjoyed this episode please rate it on on apple podcasts and if you like this episode share it with your friends on facebook twitter or linkedin and if you're not yet subscribed to unconfirmed definitely check it out and subscribe now i really think you guys would enjoy that Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Golapali, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.